0: Hey, while Jenny's doing that, I'm Jack. I'm the Bethany Northeast Lead Pastor. Welcome to our final Sunday at Nathan Hale. Excited to have a chance to um, kind of wrap up our time here together. This is also the last Sunday of Advent, so we'll be together again Saturday at Christmas Eve on Christmas Eve. So I'm looking forward to seeing many of you there. Um, but before we dive into God's Word together, let's take, take a moment to pray. God, thanks so much for uh, your Word. And most of all, uh, in this time of Christmas and Advent, we're reminded that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Um, God, we've been listening to the songs for the last three, four weeks. We've been getting ready to open the gifts. We've been doing all the things. And many of us, God, come to this place a little tired and just kind of ready to be done with it all. Um, And so would you give us uh, a sense of your presence in this season, even today? Uh, Help us to see you through it all, through all the trappings. Uh, Help us to catch a new... um, Excitement for your birth in just a few days, as we celebrate that. God, would you open our hearts as well to new sources of revelation as we open your Word together? I pray in Christ's name, Amen. Awesome. Um, so we are—we've been in this series throughout Advent called "Coming to Our Senses," where we've been looking at the stories of Christmas kind of through the five senses, and so touch, touch taste, smell, sight—all those things. And so we're kind of down to our last two. Christmas Eve, we'll, we'll do touch. As you can imagine, you're holding baby Jesus. It'll be good. And today we're on the sense of smell. And so I want to invite you to a sort of sniff test of sorts, which will illustrate, I hope, the power of smell to shape our lives. And so take out your, it's called the what's my bean test. So take out your jelly beans. This was developed by, um, hold on, I didn't practice this part. Open them up carefully. Don't worry about making a mess. Take a few out. Don't put it in your mouth yet. Actually, put one, just put one or two in your mouth, but don't, don't worry about which kind it is and just kind of try it and see what you taste. Popcorn. Don't you love the popcorn jelly belly? No, nobody does. Mmm, That's like blueberry. I love that one. We can do some trading if you want. So now here's what I want you to do. Pinch your nose. All of us are going to do this together. I'm gonna try, and then put put another one in your mouth and see what you see. What you taste? Did you taste anything? Did you taste what you taste? Like a sugared eraser? Yeah, that's what it was. Now try another one with your nose pinched, just like you just did. Except, go ahead. Pinch your nose and then put one in your mouth. Let's <laughs> just see if we can follow directions. <laughs> and, then, and then take your fingers off your nose, and see what happens. Isn't that amazing? One well, um, cinnamon, that's pretty cool. If you do three at once, it's awful. So then you just pinch your nose. Um, so it's amazing, but what, what does it mean? <laughs> Well, if you're tracking with me here, what this experiment, go ahead and you guys, this is your little door prize for the day, so you can eat them during the sermon. There's more somewhere, eat as many as you want. What this illustrates is just how deep the nose goes. I was at the Woodland Park Zoo recently with Elliot, our son, and if you're in the safari kind of exhibit, there's a skull of a lion in that, in that area. You'll have to look up, you'll see it. And the lion's nose is amazing. It has It's just amazing to look at this cavity of the nose. And so lions, their sense of smell is profound. Human sense of smell is not quite as profound. And yet, just this little experiment shows you how deep our, our sense of smell goes. So in 2008, at the International Symposium uh, on Olfaction and Taste, like who knew that was such a thing, uh, this test was demonstrated by Dr... Hertz. And she, she argued that olfaction, the sense of smell, is both the most primal sense as well as the quickest. So whereas signals detected by your eyes or your ears have to go through like, that, wow, swallowed too many at once. <laughs> Bad idea. Adam, these are for you. <laughs> well, the signals for your eyes and ears have to go through the, all these way stations to get to the thalamus before they reach your interpretive regions, Uh, smell just kind of goes through dedicated pathways right to the olfactory cortex, so where you smell for instant processing, instantly. And so here's the key. The olfactory cortex, which is where you smell, is is embedded in your limbic system and your amygdala, that part of your brain where your emotions are born and emotional memories are stored. And the reason that's important is that that's why smells... And then feelings and the memories are so so deeply entangled. That's why when you are washing dishes, you can sometimes cry. You know, when you smell dawn, soap, you know, you remember your grandmother. Or when you know, we had snow last week, some of, I was walking out, you smell snow, and you're just taken back to places you haven't been, or fresh-cut grass, or a new book. You, you know, you're in the library, you open a book or an old book, and you're taken back to places you haven't been for, for decades. In fact, in a recent study... Uh, they've begun to show how smell and memory are profoundly linked. So Dr. Maria Larson, she's an associate professor of psychology at um, Stockholm University, she shows how smell serves as a, a sort of biological time machine. So as the, it has the potential to treat dementia, uh, Alzheimer's, th- just this depression, the grim fog of age, whatever you, whatever you have you. Because of the ability to associate a smell with any deeply embedded memory, so you could smell something good or hopefully not bad, and then take you back to a place, help call up memories, treat things like dementia. All which is to say, the reason I'm telling you all this is that smell is deeply rooted in our memory and our ability to remember, which leads to the invitation that's on the table this morning as we come to the Magi, the, the wise men, and that their gifts, as we look at them, these gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, are more than just a subject for a tired Christmas carol. If you even care about that one, or like bonus characters in your nativity set, you know, they're kind of cool to have there. Instead, their story is a story that teaches us about the power of memory to shape our lives. So we're being called to remember not only who we are, but whose we are, and how we're we're called to live in response to our encounter with Jesus. And we'll do well to remember this by, here's the pun, inhaling the Christmas story deeply and not pinching our noses as we do so. But really tasting, chewing on this story and and seeing the different aspects of it, okay? So we're gonna look at two specific aspects of this story that you may not have considered before, okay? So the outline in your bulletin, gone. Two points, okay? (laughs) Sorry if you're like, shoot, I can't listen anymore. But I'll be very clear. The aspects are these the posture that the, the wise men assumed and the gifts that they brought. That's it. We're going to look at the posture that they assumed as they came into the manger and then the gifts that they brought. Okay? You with me? All right, first, this posture they assumed. Now, we, we all heard the story, the three wise men. We, we know the song, We Three Kings of Orient Are. And that's how the story goes, right? Wrong. Don't listen to the song. It's a terrible song. Read the story. Theologically, it's terrible. Uh, what you're going to see when you read the story is there are not three wise men. We don't know how many there were, there are wise men. You could say men and women. Let's just say there's men and women. There's three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So we'll get to those in a moment. Uh, but more significantly, there aren't, th- there aren't three of these people, and they're not kings. They're magi, which is hugely significant. The literal word in the New Testament that you, they're used here is the word for astrologers. So it's magoi, which meant in their time, their job, if they had a job, was to interpret dreams using magic. And I'm not talking about the magic you do for entertainment, I'm not even talking about Harry Potter magic for the Harry Potter fans out there. I'm talking about like the serious stuff of witchcraft, sorcery, like fortune tell. I know some of you think that Harry Potter magic is serious, but we have this debate in my house all the time. It's just a story. So I'm talking about the stuff of fortune tellers and psychics. Like if you've ever driven up Aurora or 15th Avenue West, like you've seen the, the, the psychics, those little shops. I'm talking about that stuff. These channelers, these telepaths, that's who these people are and I don't know about you, let's just say you're going to throw a Christmas party this week for some friends, maybe some neighbors, members of your community. You're not going to invite these guys. They, like Generally, these are kind of like Wallingford, Fremont types, right? Um, the sort of clairvoyance, I'm sorry for all those that live in Wallingford and Fremont, this is Bethany Northeast, okay? So these are, I was talking to, I was talking to the Chandlers, they live in uh, Wallingford, it just so happens that in Wallingford, they have this neighbor who goes to Burning Man every year. These are those guys that don't just have a Jesus fish on their car, but a Jesus fish being eaten by a Darwin fish, right? Or like all kinds of bumper stickers. we're in Seattle, you know who I'm talking about, right? None of you. It's okay. So guess what? They're not only invited to the party, which should sort of just blow your mind a little bit, how much God loves we say it, God loves all people. But, like, God loves, he welcomes these guys to his birth. Like, if you're in the hospital having a baby, you don't generally invite this kind of person in, right? Uh, you invite your family, and maybe this is your family, and you're just like, yeah, it's my life, Jack. But this should blow, you, blow away your well-informed ideas of who's in and who's out in God's kingdom a little bit. But also, and here's the, here's the huge part, they're not on their knees in the manger, though that's what the, the Phillips translation we read says, uh, that's not strong enough for what happens next in this story. So they come into the manger, and the Greek word that's used there is this, is this word proskinesis. And we get the English word uh, prostrate from that. So they, they didn't stand in reverent awe like we might before someone, a dignitary, like you get up and you stand up. They didn't fall on their knees. They fell on their faces, flat on their faces, which is, is something people did not do before people in those days. Certainly they wouldn't have done it before a baby. They might have pinched his cheeks, as we might have done, but they, they would not have prostrated themselves. I don't care how irreligious they were. They would have known that that did not happen in those days, except before a king. So presumably, they already see, they recognize Jesus as a king or a god. In fact, if they were good religious types, as we kind of think of them as, they would have known that this is an unambiguous form of worship. Uh, that it only belonged to God. So Jesus himself, later in his life, this is uh, Matthew chapter 4, Satan says to him, remember this in the three temptations in the desert? He says, if you'll bow down and worship me. He uses, Satan uses the word proskenesis, proskeneo, bow down before me. And what does Jesus remind him of? Command number one, worship God, proskeneo God, and God alone. That's the only being, only person, Ever, you're intended to fall down in front of like that. And it's in light of that fundamental monotheistic conviction, it's it's shocking that here in the Gospel of Matthew at the very beginning and then also at the very end, Matthew 28, twice, Jesus is being worshipped in this way, proskinesis. In fact, over 10 times in the Gospel of Matthew, people fall down on their faces before Jesus. Most of the time, they have no idea who he is. He's just some rabbi. He's just some healer. He's just some guy. And they're falling on their faces. They're hitting the deck in the dirt in front of Jesus. And, and not worshiped, by, some, by, by the way, by some pastor or some priest. You know, like uh, a bunch of lifelong Bible-believing Christians. It's not a well-put-together worship service. They're inside of a manger. He's on the road. He's at a party. <laughs> uh, these are psychic fortune-tellers doing this with all their incense and bells and things, whatever they have, they're the first ones to worship Jesus. That's amazing if you think about it. That they teach us how to worship. It's mind-blowing if you you really press into it. And so by way of application for our lives, because it's great that they did it, what do we do? Uh, I think there's a couple of ways this relates to our lives or implications for our lives. First, we're being called to recognize the superiority of God. That God is... We're, today, we came to worship, not just sing some songs. We are in the presence of a superior being, a holy other. <laughs> That's number one. They recognize that. The second thing is that when you're in the presence of a holy other, you're called to assume a stance appropriate to that being. Most of us put our hands in our pockets. I do. Some of us go this way, some of us are in between. You know? We're finding a stance appropriate to that being. And if you want a little illustration of how this might look on your just daily lives, you say you're sitting around at you know, work. You know? You're know, you in the, the lunchroom or wherever you sit. You're kind of slouching, you're sitting around with your, your friends, your coworkers, you're talking, you're laughing, using some colorful language, telling some good jokes. And all of a sudden, in the room comes somebody from work, Amazon, wherever you work, that you need to impress badly, a gatekeeper, somebody that if if you impress them, that means the next step up, right? Someone who can open all sorts of doors for you, someone in authority over you, a teacher, if you're a student. So what do you do next? Kelly, sit up. Come on. Yeah, sit up. (laughs) He's slouching, like, come on, man. You straighten up, you stop slouching, you stop rocking, and you stop telling the jokes. You start pretending that, you know, you were actually talking about real stuff. What has happened there? Proskineo. You have assumed, a, a, you've recognized a superior person, and you've assumed a stance, a posture, appropriate to that person, in accordance with their superiority. And here's the crazy thing about this story. The magi don't straighten up. They fall flat on their faces. They fall flat on their faces. And before a person that was born in a manger, who's a baby, to unwed parents. He's born to unwed parents. Like, that's who they fall flat in front of. Uh, Which means this. The invulnerable, the holy other, God, became the most vulnerable you can imagine. And invites us, if we would dare worship him in that way, into a posture of vulnerability. That's what he's doing. And, and why he does that is because the reason Jesus came, the point of worship, the reason we gather on Sundays is about relationship. It's about relationship. Jesus is about relationship. That's all he's about. That's why God became a human being, to get into relationship with you. And if you know anything about relationships, the only way you can have a deep, genuine, authentic relationship is by attempting to be vulnerable with another human being. If someone asks you, hey, how are you doing? And you just, your answer is always just good, or fine, or eh, okay. If you never go an inch deep, if you're always just going an inch deep, you never go any deeper, then you don't have a relationship. That's not a relationship, at least not the kinds of relationship that God has called us into. Uh, you don't have, if you don't have words to describe what's really in your heart, uh, if, if you don't have words to describe the darkness, the joy, the shame, the doubt, the cynicism, the hope, whatever it is, you can't put meaning to that for somebody else. Uh, If you're not able to articulate those things in some way, you're not letting yourself be known. And Jesus demands in Christ that we not only know him, but let ourselves be known by him. And there's no way to get into a relationship unless you're vulnerable. And that's where intimacy comes from, vulnerability. I love how C.S. Lewis put it years ago. And one of his books in The Four Loves. Go ahead and throw this slide up, uh, Matt. He says this, To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, he says, and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. So that's the invitation. Let your heart be broken. But if you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully in hobbies, luxuries. Avoid all entanglements, okay? Do that. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your self-centeredness. Now he's getting a little more pointed. But in there, that casket safe, dark, and motionless, airless, it will change. Your heart wasn't designed for that space. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable, invulnerable. Uh, so to love, to, I mean, if you want to experience the redemption that Jesus offers you in your life, the, the wholeness and the healing, you got to give yourself to him. And you have to begin to give yourself to others. Be, be really frank and open with them. And so here's what the Christmas story at this scene with the Magi tells us. There is no religion on the face of the earth that tells us this. Uh, there's no religion that claims it. Secularism looks at this story, eh, myth, wise men, whatever. It's impossible for a, a god to be born in a human form. Judaism, Islam say the same thing. Eastern religion, same thing. Christianity says that God became breakable. God became human. He became fragile and vulnerable. He became someone who could be held and hurt. Uh, And why? So that he could get into relationship with you. That's why he did it. It's the only reason he did it. And that's why he continues to do it through the people gathered here, to get into relationship with you. And so my question, or maybe a challenge I have for you this, this morning as we move from this point to the next is, are you lonely this morning? Are you feeling lonely? C- Christmas is coming. <laughs> you're not sure if you're going to really connect with people that you really want to connect with. Uh, if, if you're saying, are you saying to yourself, if people only knew me and my story, where I've been, what I've done, what I think about, uh, if they would run. If, if, are you hiding who you are beneath some sort of veneer? You come here, uh, you think you have to have it all together. You think Christianity is about being good. If that's you, whatever it is for you, if this notion of being deeply known by God, deeply known by others, and when I talk about being known, I mean your story, your real story, all of it, not just the highlights. If that seems impossible to you, it's because you don't really believe in Jesus. (laughs) You don't believe that he came, this cosmically and yet an absolutely infinite but also absolutely vulnerable person came in flesh one day and lived amongst us. You don't believe that yet. And Jesus wants you to believe in him in that way. Just in why? To be with you. To have you back. To be in relationship with you. That's the meaning of this story. The wise man's story. (laughs) That's the purpose of it. His vulnerability for intimacy. That's what it's about. And in order to experience that, you have to be able to give your life to him. So let me ask you, how are you coming to Jesus today? Are you saying in your coming... Not my life, Jesus. Your life. Not my plans. Your plans. Not my effort. Not my accomplishments. Not my will. It's you. I give it to you. I'm willing to give it. I'm willing to give it all. Is that you? That's the invitation here. That's what the Magi story means. And these people who had no doctrine, they had no doctrine. They had no religion. They had never. Be, they would never have darkened the door of a church in their lives. They did that. Can you? <laughs> That's the challenging question for us today. Uh, so that's the first thing. The second, that's the posture they strike, okay, a posture of vulnerability. The second are the gifts they brought, okay? And uh, we know their gifts, gold, frankincense, myrrh, right? <laughs> and at a level, that's great, but what do they mean? I'll just say they, they mean more than what they, we've made them mean, okay? So at a meta level, their gifts are really just pointers to who Jesus is and who he would become, um, so that he's more than just this child, as we've just talked about, but he's, he's a long-expected king. So gold is, is a gift you'd give to a wealthy or powerful person. So they signify Jesus' kingship. Okay? Frankincense is this sort of uh, perfume that, that served as a, one of the key elements of Old, Tes- Old Testament worship. So it's an incense that would fill the temple. If you've ever been to like, a Catholic mass, that's frankincense. They're filling the space with it. It's also an ingredient for the sacred oil. So if you go to Exodus chapter 30, there's instructions for how to make this oil. I've got a little vial of it, actually. So if, if, if I were to pray for you, there's a little vial. I got it online at www.rodco.ltd.com. You can get your frankincense oil. Yeah. But that's the stuff. And you're, the edge of your bulletin, I don't know, I haven't smelled it yet. What's it smell like? Smell it. Sniff test. Adam's eating jelly bellies. <laughs> But that's supposed to be frankincense oil, uh, some sort, so one of those edges. And just to give you a sense of what this smell is like. So that was used to anoint the the sacred space, the temple, the priests, even kings. And then myrrh was actually another incense. It was used uh, for beauty treatments, so it's kind of as a rosy, so I've been told, a rosy scent to it. But the key here is if you mix myrrh with uh, vinegar, it becomes an anesthetic. And so uh, it can be used on a person who's died as sort of a way to embalm them, anoint them. And so in John 19, Jesus is, we know this, uh, from the story, he's bound in linen wrappings with, with 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. So it's kind of a pointer. This myrrh is a pointer to his death. So gold points to the royalty of Jesus, frankincense to the deity, myrrh to his humanity. And I see some of you furiously taking notes. And guess what? None of that matters. So there you go. I'm sorry. Totally wasted your time right there. I'm serious. It's just some Bible knowledge, and it doesn't really matter that much. I mean, it doesn't, does it really matter that you know what the purpose of these gifts are today? Just walk the street. Tell your friends. They're going to go, Pff. so? I mean, really, beyond this vague notion of, of them worshiping Jesus. I'm so sorry, Kurt. Just threw you under the bus. But uh, even though they brought fragrances to Jesus, fragrances, they've been sort of these pointers, or they've been tied to worship for millennia. Uh, they're, and they're clearly worshiping Jesus, those are not the point of the story, the fragrances. I know the, the sense we're on is smell. It's not about smelling, as if God has a sense of smell. <laughs> God doesn't have a sense of smell. Uh, here's, what they, here's what I mean by this. If you read uh, Amos chapter 5, there's an indicting passage there. In fact, you can throw it up, Matt. This is what God says. Just imagine yourselves here, And God's saying this to you, or to us, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench. So he's smelling what we're doing. Imagine this. Even though you bring me offerings, burnt offerings, grain offerings, I will not accept those. Though you brought me choice offerings, I have no regard. All the noise of your songs, get it away from me. I will not listen to the music of your harps or your guitars. Here's instead what I need, justice to roll down like waters. Righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. So do you see it? I mean, worship is all good. What we did here this morning, good. Incense, good. I love the frankincense on the edge of the bullets and I love the jelly bellies. They're great. Have some more. But they're, being able to smell those and God smelling those, that's not the point of this whole thing in our lives. The point are just lives and righteous lives flowing out of this place like waters, like a torrent. That's the point of what we do here. Uh, Transformation. Coming into contact with Jesus and having your life so changed by that contact, the way you live every step of the day, I mean, every moment of the day after this is is totally different than when you came in. By by living in response to the, the presence of God, coming to the presence of God, letting justice and righteousness become norm out there. Uh, not extraordinary. That's actually what it means when it says in the story, imagine the they come to Jesus, they fall on their faces, they give him their gifts, they open them up. You can imagine the fragrances rising, and guess what? They return by a different way. That's, that's the word for repentance. They change directions. They had, they'd come there to find out where Jesus was so that Herod could come worship him. If you know the story after this, he kills all the children infanticide happens. Herod's not going to worship Jesus. He wants him dead. The Magi are sent as spies to do that, and yet they leave Jesus by a different way. Uh, Their lives were totally changed by Jesus, forever. And because of their encounter with Jesus, the world was changed. Uh, Not the kingdom of Herod anymore, the kingdom of Jesus began to break in. They were not going to live in service to Herod, but in service to Jesus in an act of Civil disobedience, they begin God's reign on earth just as in heaven. So Jesus is about life change. He's, he, he's about changing each of our lives by when we come into contact with him, whether that's in your quiet time, whether that's on Sunday morning, whether that's in your small groups, however it looks for you. World change. He's about changing us, okay? Utterly reshaping our lives. Uh, I don't do this very often, but I'm going to quote the same author, author twice, C.S. Lewis again. I'm not sure why that happened, but anyway, I thought of it. Here you go. Here's another C.S. Lewis quote to illustrate what I think Jesus does here with the Magi. Imagine yourself living in a house, he says. God comes in. You know, I've got a friend here remodeling his house. I did a remodel in my basement. God comes in and says, hey, let me take care of that for you. Wouldn't that be cool <laughs> if Jesus came over and said, I'm a carpenter. I can do this. At first, you can understand what he's doing. You hear him downstairs knocking around, getting the drains right. Stopping the roof leaks on the roof, and you knew those jobs needed doing, right? So you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house around in a way that hurts abominably. I don't know how you could hurt, but just makes a ton of noise. Doesn't make any sense to you. It's not what you asked him to do. So you ask, what on earth is he up to? And the explanation he gives you is that he's building a house quite different than the one you thought you were going to be living in. He's throwing in a new wing. He's running up towers. He's making courtyards. And he says to you, you thought you were going to be living in a decent little cottage, but I'm building you a palace, and here's why. I intend to come live in it myself. I'm a king. You see, most of us just want a little cottage by the beach. We come to Jesus when we need him. Pay us a visit, Jesus. You know, uh, get me over that so-called hump. You know, I'm facing something right now. I need to get an interview. I need to get through grad school. Am I right? So we come to Jesus, we say, hey, I'm having a hard time with something, whatever it is, parenting, marriage, that lifelong addiction. I can't get through it, stress, anxiety, fear, whatever it is, a relationship that's off the rails. Jesus, just can you give me a little extra help? I know what I'll do. I'll go to church. I'll pray. I just need a little inspiration, so I'm going to read my Jesus calling this morning. Oh, I'll listen to KCMS on the way to work. I'll listen to one of Richard's sermons while I work out. We do that. I do that all the time. But that's not what Jesus came for us to do. He isn't merely about inspiring us. He's not a cosmic motivator. That's not his job. He's not here to teach us a new way to live, to make our lives better. That's not what Jesus is about. If that's how you're coming to Jesus, you've missed it. Those are good things. I mean, Jesus said and did some amazing things that I find challenging and inspiring. But that's not what he's about. He says, I want every square inch of your lives, as one author once put it. And I intend, as you give me every square inch, to turn your life into a palace, if you'll give me the space to do so. None of this renovation stuff. None of this making you better stuff. I'm going to totally blow it up and start over. I've come to live in your life myself, and we need to start over. This is, Jesus is about going deep into your life, into the framework of your life, and just your so-called house, your spirit, uh, deeper than you thought possible, renewing you from the inside, reshaping you. This is why Paul can say in 2 Corinthians, uh, if any person is in Christ, you might flip that, if Christ is in any person, if Christ is in in any one of you here today, you are new creation. What Paul is saying there is that by Jesus coming to our lives, he makes life out of what was previously not life. Before Christ, none of us were truly alive. But in Christ, we come to life. He's making a you that was not you previously. Something that, something is out of something that was not. Creation. New creation. He's saying, coming to me is not about just turning over a new leaf. Are you, are you here to turn over a new leaf? I mean, a lot of us will do that on January 2nd. We're going to turn over a new leaf. We're going to go to church. We're going to start reading the Bible through in a year. We're going to pray. I set a goal this last year of a, a Sabbath a week, 52. I failed completely just being honest, have not had a Sabbath for weeks. Some of you, it's about reaching a goal. You have a goal you want to get to. You've set your goals. You begin to set your goals, and you're falling short. And you're, you're saying, Jesus, make me feel better about myself. Jesus is not about goals and turning over leaves and making you feel better. He's about transformation of your life, complete, total transformation, renovation, renovation of your identity, like how you see yourself. How do you see yourself today? What kind of messages do you talk to yourself when you look in the mirror? How do you see yourself? He's about freedom from sin. Think of your besetting sins, those that you cannot shake under your own power, the ones you've been, that have been in your life for 18, 20 years. I was talking to a guy this week who's he's been addicted to pornography for 18 years, and he's only 30. Think of that. How many of that is you? How many, of that is that, is, how many of us are that this, this morning? Uh, your calling. Think, I mean, what, you, what gets you out of bed every day? What gets you out of bed? What's going to get you out of bed tomorrow? Jesus is about re- renovating that, of your relationships. Some of us have really broken relationships. We know that there's a lot of racism and broken relationships out there. And Jesus says, reconciliation is possible. It's real. I can do that. Transformation of those things. Those and much more. That's what he's about. That's what the story of the wise men is about. And so my invitation to us on this last Sunday of Advent is, might we come to Jesus with that expectation? With that expectation that he can do those things and then much, much more. Total change. Total transformation. And a willingness to be changed by him. And might we come to him also just by laying our lives down. The starting place for that is Vulnerability just sharing our vulnerability with Jesus. And so that's the invitation this last week of Advent. Uh, and to help us on that journey, I want to invite our worship team forward. Just to begin this, um, I found this prayer. I saw Elizabeth, if you, my wife. From my wife, I don't know. It popped up on my phone. I don't even know why. I was looking for my uh, package that was supposed to be coming in the mail and some prayer popped up. But it's by this eight, 19th century uh, catholic bishop john henry newman i don't know how many of you have heard of him but i want to invite us to pray this together so it's going to be on the screen i'll invite us to stand and it's both a prayer of confession as well as declaration it kind of relates to the sense of smell and so i just really invite you to pray this with us if this can be you so go ahead and stand and then i'll close this by praying for us and make this your own if you can Let's pray. Dear Jesus, help me to spread your fragrance everywhere I go. Flood my soul with your spirit and life. Penetrate and possess my whole being so utterly that my life may only be a radiance of yours. Shine through me and be so in me that every soul I come into contact with may feel your presence in my soul. Let them look up and see no longer me, but only Jesus. Stay with me, and then I shall begin to shine as you shine, so to shine as to be a light to others. The light, O Jesus, will be all from you. None of it will be mine. It will be you shining on others through me. Let me thus praise you the way you love best, by shining on those around me. Let me preach without preaching, not by words, but by my example, by the catching force of the sympathetic influence of what I do and the evident fullness of the love my heart bears to you. Jesus, you are the light that has shined or has shown in the darkness. Um, but you came first to shine into our lives. And so, God, as we have even prayed this, we declare it as true for each of us. God, we claim this. It's a declaration of our faith, but sometimes it's a confession.